Action and a nobility that women are not. Um, but when you look at all of Shakespeare's plays, like Chaucer, it's just stunning what, what you see when you read these poets. The women are extraordinary, um, generally, far, far more extraordinary, oops, uh-oh, far more extraordinary than um, the men. Anyway, it's an intro. I'm, I, I don't know that we're going to get to it tonight. I hope we get just up to it. And tonight, before we leave, I want to leave everybody, um, both the men and women, with um, some pretty serious questions that, that deal with who we are sexually as men and women. Melody. Hello. Karen, Bob. Um, good to see you. Karen, is Bob not there? Uh-oh. That sounded so strong. The audio, the audio is. The audio sounds like at animated cartoon stuff. Are you all hearing what I'm hearing? It sounds ridiculous. Yes. Okay, I'm gonna go back out. I'm gonna go back out because I don't know if it's on my end. I'm gonna go back. I'll I'll go back and see if it helps, huh? Sounds like a balloon. Karen okay, needs to restart. I, Chuck, I just heard you fine. Yeah. yeah I, like a cartoon character. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out. Hold on. I'll be right back. Sounds like one of those helium balloon things. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. Um... You're already five people. Chuck and yeah, you guys sound normal to me. Oh, yes. Do I sound normal? Yes. So we're yes, we're the normal one. Karen came on. Okay. It has something to do with Karen's. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. She's always a troublemaker. Oh, <laughs> oh no. you, you should talk. I don't believe. I don't believe those words came out of your mouth. <laughs> Melody. I had to blame somebody. Oh. Who's a troublemaker? Yeah, get real, right. No, right. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's good to see you all. Can you hear me okay? That sounds better. Yeah. Okay, let's let's start. Just just for um, beginners here, openers, for those of you who came on a little bit later, I was just saying to Kay and and um, and Chuck and Lori and Connie that um, I, I think this is a remarkable play. I, I don't think we're going to get to... I, I don't want to press this play. I, I believe this is, in in some ways, the greatest of Shakespeare's plays. Be, because he goes beyond the tragic vision that he's had that we've talked about now for a week or so. And, and shows what all tragedies imply, but not all tragedies show. And he does it in a play in which women again have a central role and I was saying to people that there are um, Shakespeare's written so many plays with really good men Henry the fifth is one of the best I, I think the tragic heroes are all about good men they're all noble men they're flawed Lear Othello Hamlet I mean you can go we can go on and on the, the tragic heroes are men who are good men just like they were in the pagan world 
but they're all flawed. It's, and I'm saying this knowing that women are not lacking in flaws. Women, I believe, have just as many flaws as men. Um, but Shakespeare's written a good number of plays showing the heroic side of men, that men are capable of doing great things. Almost all of his comedies, almost all of his comedies, have as their central figures women. Um, the comedies focus on women, the virtues of women. Every comedy, except except Taming of the Shrew, and I believe that's a great comedy, even though lots of feminists will hate it. It's a great comedy, but almost all the comedies, except that one, have women as central figures. So like Chaucer, he's showing that there's something great in women. And, it, and the, the virtues of women are not those virtues, generally, that the feminists extol. They're not. They're just very different. Um, when women step into the political world like men, they tend to go bad like men do. Um, the women are extraordinary. And in this play, what he's doing, showing something extraordinary, and I think what he's showing is much closer to Mary. And what's closer to Mary will not get recognized in our world, because Mary is not held up as an ideal to the, you know, the political world today. So this is uh, an extraordinary play. It's um, it's going to present difficulties to people, um, but we'll see what you guys think of it when I when we leave tonight. I'm going to I, I'm I'm not going to try to finish it tonight. I'd like to try to get us up to the fifth act so we can deal with the fifth act next week and finish it. But I'm saying this as honestly as I've ever said anything to you. I, I think it is the most extraordinary experience of wonder, of joy, that I know of. And, um, I, I know some of you, I mean, I, I, I'm gathering from some of the comments you guys made about Pericles last week that you thought Pericles was better. I don't know what your thoughts will be when we finish this, but... Um, um, this this play, in my mind, goes well beyond Pericles. It's and it's, it's interesting. The central figures are women. Pericles, it's a man. Um, so I'll be interested to hear, particularly what the women, what you all, what you think. I, I I'm saying that knowing we won't quite get to the heart of this tonight, but I hope we can get through enough of it to give all of you a sense of what's coming. And I'll be particularly interested in hearing from <coughs> the women. Um, on what you how you respond to it, but let's let's start. Any um, K, it it may come as a surprise to you, but I've not changed my mind on the reading schedule. <laughs> we will finish Winter's Tale next week, and then um, and then did I say we're going to take a break, or are we yeah. going to? We're going to take a break after next week, and then we'll do C.S. Lewis and Chesterton. After we finish yeah. Winter's Tale. So we'll finish Winter's Tale next week, and then we'll take a... You guys will not have to deal with me for two weeks, so I, I know that'll be a joy for, for some of you. No. Um, well, we're going to start with the abolition of man, right? We should get that. Right. Or, yes, okay. right. Um, is there any particular publisher that no, you want us to look for? I'll, 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 okay. I'll, tonight, or t tonight or tomorrow, I'll send you a recommendation, but no. If you can find a cheaper, comp, you know, I don't know what's available on the market, but I'll send you what I do know. Abolition of Man is a very short work, so we should have no problem following each other, even if our pages don't match. 
you know, the, the I was having trouble finding the orthodoxy, Chesterton's. Okay. Um, Kay, I found I'll, it on Amazon. If you shop Amazon. Yeah, I, I'll go online. Kay, I, I, um, I know you can. Well, I'm assuming you can get it at Ignatius Press, but I also know that's a larger book and it includes other works of his. So I'll go online tonight, and I'll send you all an email tomorrow with suggestions for both editions. But you know, you're on your own. You'll just have to get what you can. Um, but I'll but I'll make some recommendations. Yeah, uh, Barnes and Noble online also had uh, uh, Orthodoxy. Oh wow! Oh, okay. Yeah, and yeah, half good. Half price books, half price books. You can get such a good deal, and they'll order it for you. <clears throat> yeah, they'll, they'll order it for you. Connie, you are a um, a woman after my own heart. I'm a it, shopper. Yeah, anytime. <laughs> I mean, I'm such a Scrooge. I I do not want to pay money. I don't have to pay for it. So. Me too. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. Um, any prayer? Any prayer requests? It's by the way, it's good to see you, Michael. I, we don't have your picture, Marilyn. Um, I, Mike, I heard your voice. I, I, um, if I, some of you guys may want to be invisible, I don't know. But if you if you can show yourself, it's always good to see you. But any prayer requests for tonight? Genuinely good to see you guys. I want to pray for. Um Reverend Mother Anne Therese passed away. She's uh, one of the. She was the Reverend Mother at the uh, Arlington Monastery, right there in Arlington, Texas. She passed away on Saturday. Say her name again, Connie. Uh, Mother Anne Therese. Anne Therese. Mm-hmm. In Arlington, came. Okay. We knew a convent out in Grand Prairie. Um, and the women there, we just genuinely love. It's a, it's the sisters of the Holy Family of Nazareth. I think oh. it's a wonderful. Just a, if any of you are, you know, um, close to Grand Perry or would like um, a, to it to visit another pair. It's a small, very intimate community. The women are lovely. They've got one of the most beautiful chapels I've ever. The, the image of the cross is one of the most perfect I've ever seen. You'd have to be there to see it. So. But it's a lovely community. Um, they're wonderful women. Um, anyway, anybody, any other prayers? Yeah. <coughs> you started, Don. Yeah. Let's um, let's start um, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord. Um, for the gift of our lives from you and for your presence with us this day. Um, the readings recently have, have turned around the Beatitudes and um, your encouragement of um, people who are marginalized on margins. I think it is a lot of us saying, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who suffer, blessed are those who are mourned, blessed um, those who are hated or persecuted. Um, none of us enjoys those things. Poverty, sorrow, being hated. Most of us are glad, are glad to be happy, are glad to have money, are glad um, to be liked. Um, I, you don't have a black mind mindset. That's not who you are. Um, you're, you're, you want us to know that 
if we make any of those things, wealth or wanting approval or um, not wanting to be sad, um, if we if we make aspiring for those things greater than you, we're in trouble because we're just bringing misery on ourselves. <coughs> and so you said, blessed are all of those. Um, the, um, the poor will be given, the sad will be made happy, those who are hated will be loved in your kingdom. And woe to those, and you're um, so clear about it, woe to those who make any of those things more important than you. So I ask a special blessing for all of us to step back from the world, um, free ourselves from its attachments where they get in the way, Help all of us to do a good work in the world. You ask us to do that, but help us to do it for the right reason, with our hearts in the right place. Um, I ask a special blessing on Anne Therese. Connie, she died. Yes, she passed? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Receive her soul. I mean, if she was a sister, she longed her whole life to be with you. So um, wash away any sins if there's a time in purgatory. She has our prayers to speed her and her whole life. Um, receive her into joy. Let her know what she has been longing for all of her life. Um, um, I ask for a special grace too. I, I know um, Chuck Lorre, Connie, Bob Karen, Kay, Melody, I know all of them are carrying burdens, even if they're not speaking them. We've been together too long. Um, ease their burdens, please, where they are. Um, um, the great truth in the readings this last weekend is to take delight in our sorrows. You allow tribulations to make us better. It's because you love us. You want us all to get better. So help each of us to learn to take a joy in our tribulations, to know that you are there. Um, the works that we're reading all point to that. Um, I, I don't ever want this course to become just literature. Let it be a strengthening of our faith that where there are sorrows to, to learn to see more clearly that you are there. Never not there. So somewhere in the burdens that we all carry, strengthen in us um, a delight, a joy, knowing you are there, loving you more because we know that. Ask a special blessing on Justin and Abby. They're both trying to conceive. Abby just underwent operations to help her along with that for Michael and Megan, um, and for all those that we hold in our hearts. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, let's start. Let's get back to Dry Savages. Um, this is the third in the, um, of the four quartets. Remember that each of the quartets um, takes place in an actual setting. They're historically real. So Eliot is doing all, of he, all that he can to locate us in our concrete world. He's not in an abstraction. He, he's doing everything he can to locate us in our real world. And he takes for the theme of each one of the quartets one of the basic four elements, fire, air, earth, and water. Um, and there's a, a, a different variation on the same theme. We've gone over this again and again. The theme is Christ. He never mentions him, 
um, he goes around about him because he knows he's speaking to a world that rejects him. So it's his way of moving into that world um, in a way that makes it possible for people to receive, to hear that, you know, this is not a fundamentalist who's denying the Logos or God. He's doing anything he can to situate us in the world. But like Shakespeare, he's revealing the world, but revealing another higher pattern of reality, a spiritual pattern that's working in this world so that whatever is going on here, we're aware that something more is going on that we may not see. And in Dry Salvages, remember the Salvages refer to this group of um, rocks off the um, New England coast. And he takes immediately as a subject water or river or ocean. And we know that in one sense, if we, if we hear Eliot, we, and this is almost Eastern. Um, it, it, it almost has affinity with, with Eastern religions because Westerns, after Descartes and the Reformation, Westerns tend to live in their heads. And insofar as Westerns live in their heads in ideas, they get connected, disconnected from nature. They're just not a part of nature. There's an estrangement between us and the natural order. We, to, you, I, I think I'm speaking for all of it. You know that the greater part of our world today is virtual. Virtual TV, virtual media, virtual movies. People have robots. We hear voices online. We see images online, but we don't connect with people. And we've created these virtual worlds. Movies are full of transformers and robots. And we've created this world to remove us, to distance us from nature and give us the feeling we can control nature. Everything's in our control. Eliot's taking us back to an image of water and sea and making it clear that water courses through our veins. We're connected with the sea breeze, the air, the vapor and the, you know, coming down from clouds. That we are a part of nature even if we are raised above it because we're made in the image of God. But the fact that water is a part of us connects us with a river, a sea. We're connected. Do we see it? Do we feel it anymore? It's one of the thrusts of his four quartets to help us reconnect with these things. Okay. So in Dry Savages, he opens, I do not know much about gods, but I think that the river is a strong brown god, sullen, untamed, and, and you know, he goes on, we've done this. His rhythm was present in the nursery bedroom, in the rank Alanthus of the April dooryard, in the smell of grapes. It's everywhere. Water's all about us. Does, is there anything in the world that doesn't exist that doesn't, in some ways, contain some aspect of water? Um, the river is within us. The sea is all about us. The sea is the land's edge also, the granite into which it reaches, the beaches where it tosses its hints of earlier and other creation. The starfish, the horseshoe crab, the whale back, it goes on and on. The salt is in the briar rose. The fog is in the fir trees. So I'm just recovering some of the lines, repeating some of the lines we did. The sea howl and the sea yelp are different voices, often together heard. The wine in the rigging, the wine in the rigging wouldn't be possible without the water that the ship is sailing on. The menace and caress of wave that breaks on water, the distant rote in the granite teeth, the wailing warning from the approaching headline are all sea voices. 
All of nature is speaking to us. Do we hear? Okay. Um, under the oppression of the silent fog, the tolling bell measures time, not our time. Rung by the unhurried ground swell, a time older than the time of chronometers, older than time counted by anxious, worried women lying awake, calculating the future. I think the allusion is to women whose soldiers are at sea, you know, facing possible death. Um, between midnight and dawn, when past is all deception, the future futureless, before the morning watch, when time stops, and time is never ending, and the ground swell that is and was from the beginning clangs the bell. So that's just running through the first time. So um, section two, part two of Dry Sauvages. Now I'm going to read a couple of these passages. I don't know if I'm going to ask you a question, but I want to stop to point something out. In fact, let me, let me give you a hint going forward. You remember when we did Chaucer? Um, God, you guys are good. Just remarkable. You remember when we did Chaucer, that Chaucer used what was called then a royal rhyme, couplets rhyming. Every two lines rhymed. So you get two lines of rhyme, A, A, next two lines, B, B, next two lines, C, right? You could go through Chaucer. Royal couplet after royal couplet after royal couplet. You have teachers teaching that and saying it's all artificial. It's just um, window dressing. Chaucer's imposing this artificial sound on his stories. Remember, Chaucer loved Boethius. He is, I remember making this argument with, he is not doing that. He knows from Boethius that God is never not present with us. Remember, the, the major three quarters of the way through Boethius, the major section concluded with, with Boethius saying, um, there is no bad fortune. There is no bad fortune. God is never not at work bringing evil, I mean bringing goodness out of evil. No evil exists out of God. There's nothing outside of him. Either things exist in him because he created it, or evil exists because of the things we do. And since that's so, there's nothing he's doing as a good and loving God that isn't doing, bringing evil goodness out of evil. He's always at work. That means no matter what's going on, no matter how terrible, there's an order to it. Do we see it? It's a reason the church keeps saying, be glad, be thankful, no matter what's going on. God is there trying to help us get better. Is, is that, am I clear in that? Is everybody clear? We're just, that's just reviewing Boethius, just for a second, okay? Okay, so so for Chaucer, the rhymes are not artificial. It's his way of showing us there's always an order. Remember when we did the Knight's Tale and Chaucer was describing Arceta's death in the funeral? Everybody's weeping, but he's presenting it all in rhymes. It was almost comic. If he stopped those rhymes, the easiest thing to do would be to give in to sorrows, overwhelming grief, sadness. He would not let that happen. He's constantly rhyming in order to, to keep within us this sense that there's an order, a beauty, a harmony. God will not let it go. That's his nature. Okay? Is everybody okay? 
Everybody okay? Okay, now let's see how well you guys listen. Huge quiz here. Connie, I'm sending you a quiz direct. <laughs> okay, let's see how well you guys listen. Section two of Dry Sauvages. Now let's see what you hear. Where's there an end of it? The soundless wailing, the silent withering of autumn flowers, dropping their petals and remaining motionless. Where is there an end to the drifting wreckage, the prayer of the bone on the beach, the unprayable prayer at the calamitous annunciation? There is no end but addition, the trailing consequent of further days and hours while emotion takes to itself the emotionless years of living among the breakage of what was believed in as the most reliable and therefore the fittest for renunciation. There is the final addition the failing pride or resentment of failing powers, the unattached devotion which might pass for devotionless, in a drifting boat with a slow leakage, the silent <coughs> listening to the undeniable clamor of the bell of the last annunciation. Okay, what do you guys hear? Any harmony, any rhyming? Okay, you go, 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 go. What do you, what do you hear? The rhyming of like a uh, wailing, trailing, failing, L-I-N-G. Oh, you are good. You are good. You are good. I thought I was gonna trick. I thought I was gonna trick you all and be one up on you. <laughs> you did me in again, Kay. Is everybody hearing that? Every first line rhymes with every first line. line. Each stanza line rhymes with the last. Yes. Every first every line rhymes with the same corresponding line of every other stanza. Failing, sailing, bailing, wailing, right? <laughs> Powers, cowers, lowers, flowers. Do you see? There's the now stop and think about this. He's not Chaucer. He doesn't he doesn't live in a Catholic world. They've the world has lost its sense of a god or an order. So in Chaucer the rhymes are Eliot. I mean are obvious, sorry. The the in Chaucer the the rhymes are obvious, yeah? In Eliot, they're not. They're buried. You don't hear them unless you put things together. You, the two lines don't rhyme. So you have to wait and you have to, you have to work to hear it. That's not an accident. That's, in a sense, Eliot's way of expressing his sense that's appropriate for our time. The, the order's there. We don't hear it. But we have to work to see it. And once you do, you go, ah, it's there. It's there. It's there. Is everybody okay? Is everybody who see? Good for you, Kay. I thought I was gonna <laughs> thought I was gonna trick you all, but I I've been with you too long not to know better, Kay. <laughs> okay, let's let's go on. Um there is the final addition, the failing pride or resentment at failing powers, the unattached devotion which might pass for devotionless in a drifting boat with a slow leakage, the silent listening to the undeniable clamor of the bell of the last annunciation. Where is the end of them, the fisherman sailing into the wind's tail, 
where the fog cowers. We cannot think of a time that is oceanless or an ocean not littered with wastage or of a future that is not liable like the past to have no destination. We have to think of them as forever bailing, setting and hauling while the northeast lowers over the shallow banks, unchanging and erosionless, or drawing their money, drawing sails at dockage. Not as making a trip that will be unpayable for a haul that will not bear examination. There is no end of it, the voiceless wailing, no end to the withering of withered flowers, to the movement of pain that is painless and motionless, to the drift of the sea and the drifting wreckage, the bones prayer to death its God, only the hardly, barely, prayable <coughs> prayer of the one annunciation. The power of this section, this is the first section of part two, he's talking about things wasting, Everything's waste. Everything's disintegrating. Everything's going away. Death is all around us. Um, failure, loss, pain. It does not go away. It's always with us, except for these prayers of the Annunciation. Um, and yet, behind all this waste, this um, constant um, loss of things, is this harmony, this rhyme um, in each of the sections. Is everybody clear in that? Did, is that clear? You all, is that clear enough? Do you all understand what I'm saying? There's, there's all this wastage. What's entropy? It's the sense of entropy that things in nature are always winding down, leaving decaying. And Eliot's saying, yes, it's always there. You can't escape it. It's there. And yet, there is, beneath all of this decay, this disintegration, this beauty, this order, this harmony. Okay. It seems as one becomes older that the past has another pattern and ceases to be a mere sequence or even development, the latter a partial fallacy encouraged by superficial notions of evolution, which becomes, in the popular mind, a means of disowning the past. The moments of happiness, not the sense of well-being, fruition, fulfillment, security, or affection, or even a very good dinner, but the sudden illumination. We had the experience, but missed the meaning. An approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form beyond any meaning we can assign to happiness. I have said before that the past experience Revived in the meaning is not the experience of one life only, but of many generations. Not forgetting something that is probably quite ineffable. The backward look behind the assurance of recorded history. The backward half look over the shoulder towards the primitive terror. Now we come to discover that the moments of agony, whether or not due to misunderstanding, having hope for the wrong things, or dreaded the wrong things is not in question, are likewise permanent. With such permanence as time has. We appreciate this better in the agony of others, nearly experienced involving ourselves than in our own. For our own past is covered by the currents of action, but the torment of others remains an experience 
unqualified, unworn by subsequent attrition. People change and smile, but the agony abides. Time the destroyer is time the preserver, like the river with its cargo of dead Negroes, cows, and chicken coops, the bitter apple and the bite in the apple. In the ragged rock in the restless waters, waves wash over it, fogs conceal it. On a halcyon day, it is merely a monument. In navigable weather, it is always a sea mark to lay a course by. But in the somber season or the sudden fury is what it always was. That's part two. So we'll do part three next week. It's very short. Part three and four are very short. Um, we'll pick those up next week. Okay. Um, oh, God. Hold on. Hold on. I'll be with you in one second. <laughs> um, Last week, um, um, I picked up an old theme which has been with us for a long time, actually from the beginning, um, that art's an imitation of reality, um, but the question is, what's real? Because for lots of people, particularly today, um, I don't know if this is... For lots of people, particularly today, um, reality is nothing more than what we see with our senses. So since God is not visible to us, God's not real. Angels or the dead. Um, what Christ said when he said, I'm the God of the living, would make no sense to those people. Um, Christ is saying he's the bread of life, he's alive. Anybody eats of him is going to share in that life. People want to live. That's why we eat. People want to live. He is offering himself as the life. Without it, there's death. So people who live just in their senses won't see any of this. And if they create works of art, that's all they'll show, what's available to their senses. But I've been suggesting that if art imitates reality, the question is, what's real? Does, does what, is what exists in front of us, does what exists in front of us contain more than one level of meaning. You know from Dante that it contains, from, for Dante's perspective and the perspective of our church fathers, the reality has four different levels of meaning. This is, uh, boy, I'm sorry Anne's not here because I know she would. Um, reality consists of four levels of meaning, always. That's according to Christ, that's according to the patristic fathers of the church, that's according to Dante, most allegorists. Remember, there's a, we saw this in Dante, there's the literal level of meaning. So at a literal, literal level, all of us right now are looking at each other on a screen. Um, you're looking at this foolish man with a beard and white glasses, and I'm looking at somebody <laughs> who points her finger at somebody else and says she's a troublemaker if you can believe that <laughs> we're all present literally here to each other um literally so that's the literal level the allegorical level means that in that moment 
as we're literally here engaging each other, we're either going back to an old person, somebody that we have been, what the church calls the old Adam or Eve, or moving on to something new. That is, we're either in the process of converting, getting better, or we're going back. That goes very much to Eliot's poem. Is everybody clear? On one level, it's just literally here, but on another deep old spiritual level, it means we're either staying where we are or we're getting better. Yeah? Either the old is tugging us or the new, or we're, that's our struggle. It's a spiritual, what the church would call spiritual warf warfare. We're struggling to get better. On the third level, the, what, what the church called tropological, the tropological deals with what we ought to do. So in this moment, in this time, as we're literally together here with each other, are we doing what we ought to do or not? Are we doing something we should not do? So there's this imperative. Are we struggling to do what we ought to do, to become better? Christ is our image, the saints are our image. Are we struggling to get better? I hope I'm not misspeaking here. Um, I'm saying this quite honestly. I take inspiration from you guys. And I'm saying that very, very seriously. To see what you guys are doing each week inspires me. Um, I find a strength in it to do better. Do I always live up to the things that you suggest to me? No, there are times when I fail, and I'm assuming you guys too. But are we struggling to do what we ought to do? Okay. The fourth level is the anagogical. It's the final, ultimate end. Are we with Christ in everything we're doing? You know that one of the great tropes, one of the great metaphors of our work together is um, has to do with the Eucharist. I keep asking you guys, when you take the Eucharist, where are you? Are you just going out to the car in the parking lot, or are you, do you carry Christ with you? Are you in his kingdom? Are we with him in that moment? Is he really present? One of the things I've suggested, I mean, I've asked my family to do, I think I've suggested to you guys, when you pray, this is becoming more and more a serious thing for me. When you pray to Mary, do you imagine Mary right next to you? Do you actually imagine her there as she is, talking with her, praying? Or is she at a distance? I mean, my suggestion is get her close to you. If you're praying to Christ, which is scary, pray to him next to you. Get him close even when it's scary. Yeah, if we keep God at a distance, it seems to me it just leaves us free to do some of the things we probably shouldn't do. So the fourth level is the final level. Are we there, anagogically, with God? So at every moment in our lives, there's always multiple levels of meaning. And the question for any artist is, what's real for us? A secular person is not going to create a story in which the Incarnation has a role or forgiveness. You'll have a strong sense of justice and vengeance. It's one of the things I dislike about modern, because I love action movies. It, it really troubles me when modern movies deal with wrongs because typically they answer them with vengeance. They don't deal with, they don't deal with wrongs in a spirit of justice or mercy. They don't take justice seriously. They answer it with vengeance. 
with another violence. It just sets up a circular cycle, um, an endless cycle. So the question with respect to art is, um, what's reality? If art is a form of imitation, what's, it, what's reality? What's it's imitating? And in my notes, if you've looked at them, um, the pagan world knew that there were gods, because we know from our reading that gods were in and out of that world. The Odyssey, the Iliad, the Aeneid. In Judaism and Islam, they, they deny the incarnation. They denied um, God taking on a human form. So in any artwork they do, they're going to lack a sense of the logos, of an incarnate God coming into the world. Their concern is going to be far more on the law, on justice, not mercy, not love, not forgiveness, not wonder, or not at least as we know it through Christ, um, the Jewish the Jewish people in their in in their tradition um, take seriously the holiness of God. Um, but in any artwork, is is there anything going on that suggests forgiveness or the um, or the resurrection? The modern secularist will have a strong sense of wrongs in the art that he produces. Um, he will deal with wrongdoing pretty seriously or comically. He can help us laugh at it. <clears throat> Is there anything in the work that he that he does that suggests a resurrection, mercy, forgiveness? Christianity, I'm arguing, is the only belief in the world that recognizes the wonder of a divine person entering human nature to take on our sins and die for us. And he's asked us to do the same, to bring that same sense of justice and love. I, I will never separate those as long as I live. Christ's crucifixion means nothing if it doesn't mean he's answering an injustice against his Father. He says in the Gospel of John repeatedly, if you follow my commandments, in fact he says it in his last meeting with the disciples and the, you know, the washing of the feet and when he says, I call you friends, follow my commandments. And he did everything he could to obey his Father's commandments. So the Gospel of John, if you've read John recently, if you haven't read it, he almost does nothing in that gospel without saying, my father, my father, my father, my father. He sent me. In me you see him. In him you find me. Um, if you don't love him, you don't love me. If you don't love me, you don't love him. He came to answer the injustice against God by bringing a justice to it and an infinite love. And he asked us to do the same, to be just and to bring his mercy to what we do in justice. So a Christian writing a work of art dealing with disorders or problems or crimes or evil or whatever he does, presumably would be somehow in that story um, dealing with an action that was answered, answered through the resurrection or mercy or love. I suggested last week that all art begins in medias race, in the midst of things, always. Every great epic started in the midst of things. Every moment in our life, in a sense, is an in medias race moment. We're always in the midst of things. We will never escape it until we die. The question is, in that in, in medias race, in the midst of things, are we moving towards a better end? 
Remember the tropological level of meaning was, are we doing what we ought to do? The anagogical level, the highest is, are we with God? In any in medias race moment, in the midst of things, are we moving back to our old selves? Are we moving forward? I take it for granted that all of us are in sin, that we all carry failures and weaknesses with us, so we trip. Do we get back up in hope? Do we stand up again and go on in faith? If we do, it means that's an immediate race. We're, we're moving ahead, always in the midst of things. And lastly, I suggested that in Shakespeare, Shakespeare's doing something that nobody else had ever done before. If you look at the pagan tragedies, they all end with death. And yet in every pagan tragedy, the tragedy ends with all the evils answered. It can be Oedipus, it can be Orestes, we've read them, right? All the evils in, in Oedipus are answered for him. So um, all tragedy ends with um, um, a restoration, a renewal, a recovery implied. They don't show us the new order that's about to come into being. They just show us the evil's been answered. So the ground has been cleared for a new order. That's the nature of tragedy. Okay? Is everybody clear? That's tragedy. Shakespeare does the same thing in all of his tragedies. Um, Othello, Macbeth, Hamlet, Lear. All these disorders in every play are answered. The, the stage is set for um, a renewal, recovery, a new order. But it's never worked out. Because to go there would be to go to comedy. What Shakespeare does in Winter's Tale is something no other poet ever did. He takes us, halfway through the play, he takes us through a tragic action. It's the Othello action. A man accuses his wife of infidelity and does something that leads to her death. Othello did that. We read it, right? We know that. That's the way Othello ends. Here, the first half of the play enacts the same action. Leontes accuses his wife of adultery and puts her to the tower. And when we let her where we were about to leave off last week, she dies. And yet the play continues, and what he does in what continues is something never done before. So it's a remarkable play in that way. Remember I said that every play, if you go to my notes, you'll see every play begins with an opening conflict. In medias race, there's something wrong. It moves towards a camp complication. We could take every work we read. We could identify the opening problem. We could look at the complication. It moves towards a crisis. That's true for all of us. Um, we can be 35 years old and think our life is settled and then suddenly we get news that um, our sister has um, just died or committed adultery or whatever it is. Our children do something stupid. Just when we think everything's okay, we learn that they're not and we're in the middle of a crisis. I hope I'm not... I'm not speaking in air. I'm trusting everybody knows these things that, you know, that we're all in the same suffering world. So an opening conflict, a complication, a crisis, and then a denouement. Something happens to begin to settle things, to answer them, and then a resolution. That's the action of tragedy. The most important point to take away from that 
is that every tragedy implies a rationality in nature, a recovery on the part of the tragic hero. He recovers his balance. There's a restoration of sight. It's true with Lear, with Gloucester, with Othello, right? Othello saw, Lear saw, Oedipus saw. Does everybody do play? Okay. So every tragedy implies an equilibrium, some rationality, some nature, order that human action recovers. There's a restoration that takes place. So in, in Shakespeare's um, Winter's Tale, in the first half of the play, we're taken towards that moment when everything seems hopeless. Um, it's where we're going to go next. And that's where it leaves us off. And yet, he, after that, he's going to do something that's not been done before. Okay. The great themes, some of the great themes we looked at, um, the two themes, the, the Cecilia, which is the very sophisticated, cultured area. It, it's an image of what so many of the Renaissance Italian states must have been like. Um, Sicily, Venice, Florence, Naples, all of them were centers of culture and art. If you look at the rest of Europe, they're relatively backwards compared to those Italian city-states. They were sophisticated, wise, and yet Shakespeare's showing that the danger is that with that sophistication, as people become more intelligent, they become more cunning, more susceptible to disorders. The brighter, the smarter you are, the more likely it is to have problems. Bohemia was set off against Cecilia, or Cilicia, Cecilia. Bohemia is a pastoral world. It's closer to nature. Things are more rustic, more ordinary. So he's showing us two very different ways of life. Um, the, another important theme is the, is the differences between men and women. Men tend to live in their heads, in structures in their minds. Women have entered that world today and entering the political world. Women are far more, are far closer to nature, as Shakespeare shows it here. Women can conceive, they can bear children, they're more nurturing, they're closer to nature. Um, and we see in the play that, that the, the, the male and female um, um, aspects of the play are in conflict. Laertes is going to accuse his wife of adultery. She's innocent. She's powerless to do anything about it. And, the, and um, she's pregnant. And you know that she gives birth to Perdita. And Perdita will be um, taken away to die. So Perdita, once again, just like Marina in, in uh, Pericles, will be a young girl who has no choice. She's going to grow up in a world in which she's faced with all these disorders and has to make her way. And both plays show, once again, this remarkable quality in women um, when they're at their best, um, when, when they're completely true to their nature. The theme of fathers, Leontes is a father, Polixenes is a father. Both of them are given to anger. They're both given to power. Um, you know that um, Leontes accuses his friend of adultery. He's not. He's innocent. He goes away. Polixenes is going to really angry at his son because his son did not trust him. So constantly there's this conflict between fathers and their children. 
um, over this matter of authority. Kids tend to take authority for granted. They can be defiant, which was the case in Lear, because remember, two of the daughters were awful, I mean, awful children. Um, so the theme of the father's authority in a family, once again, um, the, the theme of clothes, it'll come in at the end when characters have to switch clothing in order to carry off something. Um, I'm going to introduce this tonight um, looking forward because it's not going to be small for me. In the second half of the play, we will get there in a few minutes, we're introduced to a character named um, Autolycus. He's a rogue. His name is Autolycus. Now, now pay attention to this because this is important. Autolycus, you wouldn't remember this, but Autolycus was the name of Odysseus's grandfather. And his grandfather is the person who named Odysseus. Now the word Autolycus has its origins in a mythic figure whose name was Autolycus. Um, I can't remember, it means self-changing or self-doing. The mythical figure lived on Parnassus and he was the child of um, Hermes, who is the thief god. Remember, Hermes is the god of stealth. He, he steals up on people. He, he's the one who leads the souls to the dead, um, to the underworld. He's the one who comes to give Odysseus the Molly on the island of Calypso. He's sort of stealthily dealing with things. So in literature, there's this figure that's called a Paneros. A Paneros. Remember that, Paneros. He's a rogue. The word Paneros in Greek actually means evil. When it's used in scripture, I think it, maybe Paul uses it, I can't remember, in Greek, it refers to something evil. In literature, it usually refers to a rogue, a mischievous guy. And we get images of, of, uh, of rogue figures from the very beginning of literature. Odysseus is a rogue. He's mischievous. He takes on different guises. He, um, he upsets people's lives. He's tricky. He's cunning. So one of the earliest images, illustrations of a, of a rogue figure, of a Paneros, is Odysseus. In um, Aristophanes' plays, in I think it was The Clouds, Strepsides is a father figure who's a rogue, roguish figure. If any of you have read Lysistrata, it's, remember it's Aristophanes' comedy about this woman during the Peloponnesian War, who hates war and she is so frustrated with the way men are killing each other between Greece and Sparta that she convinces all the women in the town to withhold their sexual favors until the men straighten themselves out. <laughs> so the, the women don't give the men sex and finally the, sex and the, finally the men come around and, and so <laughs> a piece is brought to their... She's, she's one of the most wonderful feminine rogue figures that I can remember. Um, I've tried to think of others, and I'm not sure of any that you would know. The, the fool in Lear is a little bit like a rogue figure. Not quite, because he's, he's, he's so one-dimensional. Paroles, for those of you, we've read Paul's um, Well at Enwells. Paroles is a roguish figure. Um, Falstaff, if you've read it, there's a, there's a figure in Faulkner whose name is Ratliff White. I think is one of the most amazing characters. He, if we get to Faulkner, I hope we can read some of that trilogy. If any of you have seen Grumpy Old Men, mm -hmm. if you've seen the, the Grumpy and Grumpier Old Men with Walter Matthau and Jack or Jack Lemon, Jack Lemon um, 
Max is a rogue figure, but in some sense, both of them are. I mean, they're both constantly trying to trick the other guy. So hold on to that, this rogue figure, because Autolycus is a rogue figure. And we won't go into this tonight. I don't, we may, I don't think we'll get there tonight, but, but at the end of the play, during this um, sheep shearing festival, Autolycus, who's a thief and a rogue, is trying to sell these lyrics the lyrics are just like the lyrics in our time. And the, it's, most of his lyrics have to do with women and women's susceptibility to romance. And it takes place when two of the women are trying to come on to this young man, the son of the shepherd. So if Shakespeare's looking at the, of an inclination, a susceptibility in women towards fantasy and romance. And um, Autolycus um, is making mints out of it. I mean, he's, he's a con guy. He's a grifter. Is that the word? He's a grifter. He's using these things um, to his advantage. And yet Shakespeare's going to do something with that figure that's really interesting. And my question is, why? Why is he there in Bohemia? What's Shakespeare doing um, in having him there and giving him the role he does? So there's this rogue figure who plays a role in the, an important role in the action. We see this rogue, rogue figure everywhere in literature. I think, I think I'd, I'd be surprised if most of us couldn't identify a rogue figure. I think some of the women on this program, some of the, on this, <laughs> have something in rogues. In it. I'm not going to point any fingers here, but I think a couple, that maybe all of you, all of, I, when I think about all, I don't know that any of you escape, all of the women here in this class have something of that in them. Um, but it's an important figure, and I think we can all, we probably all know somebody. And when I think about him, I think about it in this terms. You look at that guy, he's full of mischief, he does, he, 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 he'll do wrong things, and somehow they'll turn out okay, and he will escape them. And very often the things he do will lead to good, but when you look at him, you just, you say, I wish that guy would get hung or somebody would do away with him. But he keeps coming back. He's just fearless in doing what he does. That does not describe the women in your class. <laughs> Did you all hear Suzanne? That does not describe the women. <laughs> she's too innocent. No, she's too interested in making a point. He's talking about mischief. That describes some of them. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say, I, I do not believe the women that I know in this class do not have any mischief in them, because that, I just don't believe that. Um, I think most of them do. And you? <laughs> not a question. Connie's shaking her head. <laughs> okay, let's, let's go to the play. Let's go to the play. Um, any questions about those themes or what we've been talking about or how important they are? I want to go to the play, but any, any questions about anything we've done so far? I want to get to this trial scene because it's it's the crux of the whole, it's the turning point of the whole play. So, any questions though or comments on? Maybe mischief, mis but not the rogue. Yeah. No. <laughs> yes. Ro yes, rogue for sure. <laughs> See, we've already got a male female conflict going on here. Rogue for sure. <laughs> Lysistrata was, I mean, you, you might not use the word for her, but 
but she fits that category. I mean, she's, you know, she's, she's, she's just, she's just doing what she has to. It's a funny comedy and it's, um, okay, let's, <laughs> let, let's go to the play. Unless there's any questions or any other comments here. Okay. Um, act three, scene one. Um, Cleomenes um, and Dion have gone to the Oracle of Apollo. They were sent there by Leontes, um, thinking that Apollo would confirm his suspicions, that his wife is unfaithful, his best friend has cheated on him, and he wants the um, backing of the gods. In Act 1, or Act 3, Scene 1, um, Cleomenes says the climate delicate, uh, he's surpassing Dion, I shall report for it, um, for most it caught me, the celestial habits, methinks I so should term them, and the reverence of the grave waters, O oh, the sacrifice, how ceremonious, solemn, and, unearth and unearthly it was in the offering. I want to, I mean, lots of people would pass over this. I do not want to pass over this because in this small scene, Shakespeare is giving us a sense that there is something sacred about the atmosphere of um, Apollo's temple, okay, as the men reported. The reason I'm saying this is because one of the major questions that I want to ask everybody is, are the gods present in this play? Is the divine order, is there something Christ-like going on? Do we see it? Are we aware of it? Um, is our faith open to it? Here Shakespeare is giving us, they're, they're not there, they're on their way home, but they're describing what took place, Cleomenes, but of all the burst and the ear-deafening voice of the oracle, kin to Jove's thunder, so surprised my sense that I was nothing. He's overwhelmed by the moment, and he remembers it. So in this nothing scene, we're left with a sense that there's something sacred to the oracle. We go to the to Cecilia, um, to a, a, a hall where Leontes is called a tribunal um, to enact a sense of justice. In his mind, um, he's going to be able to condemn his wife and prove it and probably sentence her um, to confirm what he says. Um, the, or, the officer, this is Act 3, Scene 2, the officer calls the court um, to attention Hermione steps forward to answer the charges against her. Um, this is about line 20. Since what I am to say must be but that which contra contradicts sorry, my accusation and the testimony in my part no other but what comes from myself, um, it shall scarce boot me to say not guilty. She knows it's almost powerless to do anything because Leontes is um, being autocratic. He's got absolute control over what goes on. But thus if powers divine behold our human actions, if the gods are watching over, as they do, notice her faith. She is unwavering immediately in her faith. She doesn't shake at all. This is like Christ. This is like Paul. This is like any of the martyrs. But thus, if powers divine behold our human actions as they do, I doubt not that but innocence shall make false accusations blush 
and tyranny tremble at patience. I can't hear that without hearing Christ before Pilate or Herod. Um, St. Thomas is against his accusers. I mean, you, you choose. Um, you, my Lord, best know who least will seem to do so. My past life hath been as continent, as chaste, as true, as I am now unhappy, which is more than history can pattern, the devised and played um, to take spectators. For behold me, a fellow of the royal bed, which owe a moiety of the throne, a great king's daughter, the mother of a hopeless, hopeful prince, here standing to prate and talk for life and honor, for who please to come and hear. Extraordinary. Put down for honor, tis a derivative from me to mine, and only that I stand for, I appeal to your own conscience, sir. Before Polixenes came to your court, I was in your grace, how merited to be so. She's never been any different. Today she who is, she is who she was, the nine months that Polixenes was there, the way she has been to her husband always. Since he came with that encounter so uncurrent, I have strained to appear thus, if one beyond the bound of honor or an actor will, that way inclining, hardened to be the hearts of all that hear me and my nearest of kin cry fie upon my grave. She's the daughter of a Russian king, an emperor. She's queen to a king. She is mother to a son whom she loves and who loves her. Um, she says when he accuses her again about line 80, Sir, you speak a language that I understand not. My life stands in the level of your dreams, which I'll lay down. It's absolutely, if any of you, by the way, if any of you have not seen the play, the BBC production did a winner's tale that I just think is extraordinary. Uh, we have a copy. It's, it's just really worth watching. She says nothing in anger. There's no spite, no resentments. Um, she's being firm in her answers and absolutely humble. Leontes, your actions are my dreams. You had a bastard by Polixenes, and I but dreamed it. As you were past all shame, those of your facts are so, so past all truth, which deny concerns more than avails. For as thy brat has been cast out, like to itself, no father owning it, which is indeed more criminal in thee than it, so thou shalt feel our justice. Um, he sent the child away because he sees it as illegitimate. It's not his. They both deserve the same fate. Hermione. Sir, spare your threats. The bug which you would fright me with, I seek. To me can life be no commodity. The crown and comfort of my life, your favor, I do give lost, for I do feel it gone, but know not how it went. My second joy and first fruits of my body, from his presence I am barred like one infectious. She can't see her son or her daughter now. My third comfort starred most unlickily is from my breast, the innocent milk in, um, in it, most innocent mouth, hauled out to murder. Myself and every post proclaimed a strumpet. She's shamed everywhere with its modest hatred, the child bed, privilege denied, which longs to women of all fashion. Lastly, hurried here to this place in the open air before I have got strength of limit. She's weakened from her delivery. Um, now, my liege, tell me what blessing I have here alive, that I should fear to die. 
She almost welcomes death to be rid of the suffering that she's going through. Therefore, proceed. But yet, hear this. What courage in this woman. Mistake me not. No life, I praise it, not a straw, but for mine honor which I would free. If I shall be condemned upon surmises, I'll prove sleeping else. But what your jealousies awake, I'll tell you, tis rigor and not the law. Your honors all, I do refer me to the oracle. Apollo be my judge. She's trusting in the gods. Um, Hermione, the emperor of Russia, was my father. Oh, that he were alive and here beholding his daughter's trial, that he did but see the flatness of my misery, yet with eyes of pity, not revenge. Um, I, I think it's important to see that at this point, um, Leontes is just impatient um, and frustrated. His wife is saying all of these things. He's convinced he's right. He um, wants the oracle to be read to prove how right he is. The officer approaches and reads the oracle. Leontes, break up the seal and read. The officer, Hermione is chaste. Polixenes, blameless. Camilo, a true subject. Leontes, a jealous tyrant, his innocent babe truly begotten. And the king shall live without an heir, if that which is lost be not found. Remember, his daughter's name is Perdita, that which is lost. The oracle is not only proclaim, proclaiming a truth, it's giving a warning. He will be without an heir. You know that the kingdom can't go on without an heir. And, and you remember in the beginning at the, when we read, the lords were all looking forward to this young boy coming to manhood because they had the promise of being such a good king. You all remember? In fact, they, all, it said, they said they take life from him. They wanted to live longer just to see that boy grow up. And the king shall live without an heir, if that which is lost be not found. That's a strict warning. His kingdom's in danger right now. The lords, now be blessed, the great Apollo prays. Leonte, hast thou read truth? He doesn't believe it. There is no truth in it, he says, all in the oracle. The session shall proceed. This is mere falsehood. A servant comes in. The king's denied the oracle now. Servant, Hosura shall be hated to report it. The prince, your son. God, this is heartbreaking. If any of you have seen the play, I mean, it just it's just hard to watch these moments. Um, the prince, your son, with mere conceit and fear of the queen's speed, is gone. Leontes, how? Gone? Servant is dead. Leontes, Apollo's angry, and the heavens themselves do strike at my injustice. So for the first time since the opening he breaks and it's under the weight of the news that his son is dead um, Paulina this news is mortal to the queen look down and see what death is doing the news that her son has died has broke so is broken her heart we're getting two things here the son dies from a broken heart his love is so great it's crushed by what his father's done to his mother yeah there's no report of illness his heart is broken Hermione hears that news, her heart is broken, and she faints. So, I mean, the sadness at this point is almost unbearable, okay? Leontes, take her hence, her heart is but o'ercharged, she will recover. I have too much believed my own suspicion. Beseech you, tenderly apply to her some remedies for life. 
He's sorry for what he's done. He turns, Apollo, pardon my great profaneness against thine oracle. I'll reconcile me to Polixenes. Nuwu, my queen, recall the good Camilla, whom I proclaim as a man of truth. Now, this is amazing to me. This is amazing. The king's repentant. He's sorry for what he's done. What's wrong? Let me just stop here. What's wrong with just being sorry? It doesn't atone. That's only half of the process. Yeah, not even half. I mean, it doesn't even begin. He's lost his son. His queen is, we don't, I mean, fainted here at this point. Is everybody clear? He's sorry. The sorrow won't answer the gravity of what he's done. He's lost his friend. Camilo was sent away. He's just lost his son. So the gravity of his actions is serious. I hope everybody's clear. Saying you're sorry doesn't cut it. And it's not to take it away. I mean, I, 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 hope, I'm, I, hope, I'm, I hope I'm being careful here. I'm trying to be. His sorrow is genuine. We can't take that away from him. But I'm saying that because something's about to happen now. And I, it only makes sense if, you, if, we, if we understand that saying you're sorry is important. It does not answer justice. There's something still wrong that has to be answered for. So it's an important moment, okay? He wants to make up to Polixenes. He wants to make up um, to Polixenes, Camilo. And suddenly Paulina comes in, and Paulina is probably wailing at this moment. Woe the wild, O oh, cut my lace, lest my heart cracking it break too. Lord, what fit is this, good lady? Paulina, what studied torments tyrant hast for me? What wheels racks fires? What flame boiling in leads or oils? What old or newer torture must I receive whose every word deserves to taste of thy most worth? Inflict on me what pain you will. It will not come close to what she feels, the suffering right now. Thy tyranny together working with thy jealousies, fancies too weak for boys, too green and idle, for girls of nine, oh, think what they have done, and then run mad, indeed, stark mad, for all thy bongine fooleries were but spices of it. Um, that thou betrayest Polixenes, t'was nothing, that did but show thee of a fool inconstant and damnable and grateful, nor was much thou wouldst have poisoned good Camilo's honor, to have him kill a king, poor, tre poor trespasses, more monstrous standing by. Um, where have I reckoned the casting forth to crows thy baby daughter, to be or none or little, though a devil would have shed water out of, um, out of fire ere done it? What he's done is worse than a devil. Nor is directly laid to thee the death of the young prince, whose honorable thoughts, thoughts high for one tender, cleft the heart, that could conceive a gross and foolish sire, blemished his great his gracious dam. This is not so. All of these things. Now remember, it's it's crucial to remember. Um, we don't. We're about to see it. To Paulina's mind, um, Antigonus, her husband, was sent away with the babes to leave, abandon it somewhere to its death. Right. So she's saying, "You chase Polixenes. You chase Camilo away. You've lost your son." She does not know yet that her husband will die. She'll learn that. So I want everybody to just hold on to this. This is a woman whose queen lost her son. The king has caused the death, the life of his son. Um, 
the running away of his servant and his best friend. Paulina will learn at some point that her husband's gone. Okay, hold on to that. Those are all things. And she says, all of this is nothing next to what you're about to hear. Lord, the highest powers forbid. Pauline, I say, wait, so, O Lord, but the last, O Lords, when I have said, cry, woe, the queen, the queen, the sweetest, dearest creatures, dead and vengeance for it, not drop down yet. Lord, the highest powers forbid. Pauline, I say, she's dead, I'll swear it. If word nor oath prevail not, go and see. If you can bring tincture, luster in her lip, her eye, heat outwardly or breath within, I'll serve you as I would do the gods. But, O thou tyrant, do not repent these things, for they are heavier than all thy woes can stir. Therefore betake thee to nothing but despair. Remember um, Beatrice's <laughs> anger at Dante. I mean, she caused Dante to faint. What she did with Dante is nothing next to this. O thou tyrant, do not repent these things, for they are heavier than all thy woes can stir. Therefore betake thee to nothing but despair. A thousand knees, ten thousand years together, naked fasting upon a barren mountain, and still winter in storm perpetual, could not move the gods to look that way thou wert. He says, go on, go on, thou cannot speak too much. I have deserved all tongues to talk their bitterest. Um, she continues to um, go on. Um, she says um, about line 223, Do not receive affliction at my petition. It's like she softens for a moment. I beseech you rather, let me be punished that I have minded you of what you should forget. Now, good my lease, or, um, royal sir, forgive a foolish woman. The love I bore your queen, lo, fool again, I'll speak of her no more. Because every, I mean, she knows what she's doing. Every mention of the word queen, queen is going to bring a pang to Lanty's heart. And she keeps saying, I'm not going to mention her again. And then she keeps mentioning her again. Um, now, good my lease, the world, sir, forgive a foolish woman the love I bore your queen. Lo, fool again, I'll speak of her no more, nor of your children. <laughs> I'll not remember you of my own lord, who is lost too. My own lord, her husband, take your patience to you, and I'll say nothing. Okay, she's lost her husband, the queen is dead, the son is dead, Camilo and Polixenes are gone. Um, Leonte says, Thou didst speak but well when most the truth, which I receive much better than to be pitied of thee. Pretty bring me to the dead bodies. He goes on, So long as nature will bear up with this exercise, so long I daily vow to use it. He's committed himself to impenance. I think that's where the play gets its name, A Winter's Tale. This will be a long winter's tale, a penance. It will be an extended time of penance for him to try to make up for the wrong he's done. Um, to try to put this into perspective, because it's a heavy moment right now, um, but um, I, I mean, I've got, to, I've got to give this. You remember from Dante, that the whole thrust of Dante's purgatorial was that our life here on earth should be a purgatory. We should be, we should be doing what we can to answer our sins while we're here. That's what Leontes is doing. He's not, but he wouldn't do it before. Now he is. What, what we're asked to do is pick up our sins now and bear them, answer them, to be truthful, to be honest, to 
answer our wrongs, to do penance for them. So the 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 um, the title of the play, Winter's Tale, I think takes its title from what's taking place at this moment. Okay. Now let me stop for a minute because the play is going to do a, a radical 180 degree turn in the next two minutes, but I don't want to stop. My question is this. Um, <clears throat> it's a question one of my best students asked me when, when I was teaching. His question was at this moment of the play, why is it that so often we have to lose almost everything we have before we make a turn, a serious turn in our lives? So let me let me throw that out at you guys. I think it's a good question because we're at that point. Leontes has lost everything. Camilla has lost. Polixenes has lost. The son's gone. The wife's gone. Pauline has lost her husband. He's gone. And she's lost everything she loves, her queen, the prince. Why is it that so often, as human beings, we have to lose something before we will turn? Let me take a minute with that, can we? What's, what's your response? Would you agree or not? Yes. Chuck, go ahead. Why? Oh, what? Well, sure. Um, a number of things come to mind immediately. One is that we like to think we're contemplative, but mostly we're not. We're reactive. Um, and we're, we're temporal beings. We're consumed with what's happening to us immediately or is going to immediately happen without stepping back and taking a longer term view of things and so appreciating them. And when you add, when you lose something, obviously you're forced to do that. Anybody else? You just, uh, sorry, you can't see me, Bob, but uh, I'll answer anyway. Yeah, go, Mike. Glad to hear you. I... Uh, I think in part it's a symptom of our uh, living outside of the present. We, we live, uh, we live uh, in the past and the future and uh, are so often not, uh, not present in the present. Uh, so, and, and, and so unable to appreciate that which is given us at, the, at that moment. Yeah. Bob, you have thoughts on this? Maybe, I don't know. And <laughs> I think, I don't know if you're, uh, Bob, I don't think your audio is on. You were, it was on. Well, I would say the things that I see that people put in their lives and perseverate on don't end well. They make poor choices. And I, I would say for the most part, they're not things of value. And that's what I see all the time. Say that you're, they're not seeing the values? Say, is that what you said? They don't see the value yeah, yeah. and virtue, the things that are virtuous in life, because they're so caught up in what they're doing and in the things of the world. And um, I mean, that's my own personal experience and what I see when I deal with people all the time. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Connie, you look like you've got something. Go ahead. No, it just came to mind. It's like you don't know what you have until you lose it. <laughs> so you're not aware. I mean, Connie, why? I mean, my question is yes. I mean, I, I so believe this, and it, we're seeing it here in, in, you know, writ large. But why? I mean, flesh, you don't know the value of something until you lose. Flesh that out. Why is that so for us as humans? Hey, go, Connie, did you want to follow that up or no? No, no I'll let Kay can go. Go ahead. Go ahead, Kay. I think just like we learn from our own mistakes, suffering is like mistakes. We learn from it. And that ties in with what Greek philosophers said. Suffering makes us better. <laughs> and wiser, yeah. Yeah, we can't grow in wisdom without, we only grow in wisdom through suffering, yeah. Anybody else? Melody, you wanna, you look like you've got that probing mind of yours working. Well, okay, so I was thinking of what you've been talking about so much with suffering, like Kay just talked about, that um, we don't wanna suffer as humans so we put up those walls to keep ourselves from suffering, which block our view of other people and, and what they're going through. So we make up our own narrative about what's going on until we have put up so many walls that, that nothing else comes through. And that's when that change takes place, that we finally give up and, and figure out that we need, to, we're the ones that need to change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not so much seeing or not seeing what's going on with other people, it's not seeing what's going on with ourselves. Um, anybody else before we? I was just thinking about um, how hard it is, when, you know, you can think about things when you lose what everyone's talking about here, but um, giving gratitude. I, I don't think that it's, it's in our nature to be grateful for what we have. And I, I think that it's easier to be, you know, just seeking your own desires all the time and what you want and what you think is right, but to actually look outside of yourself and be grateful for what's here now. Yeah, um, yeah. Is, is, is what I'm kind of, you know, thinking about right now. Yep, yep. Let me try to pull um, some of these things together. Um, if I were to answer the same question, I'd say, um, why is it we have to lose something? I'm just putting together what all of you guys are saying, but I will give a different cast to it too. I think it's in our pride, um, in our pride, we think we're okay, and I think think we think in our pride we deserve more than we get so we're constantly striving to get things but in that pride we're blind to those things in it that's been a theme since we did Achilles Oedipus Lear I mean you, we can't look at a word work that we've read that doesn't show that um, we're blind in our pride our pride blinds us we don't see ourselves very well we don't see the implications of our actions we don't look and particularly if we're gifted, I mean, if we do all these things to, you know, to benefit ourselves, 
But I would say the source of it is our it's blindness. And the interesting thing for me is when we read the Gospels, we have all these people coming to Christ who are blind, and we think we've got sight. One of the one of the themes that's run through almost everything we've read is this the way in which our pride blinds us. We think we deserve more than we get, and we don't want to lose it. And when we do lose something, it because of the suffering that it brings on, it forces us to look at ourselves, to get past our blindness, to see ourselves more truthfully, to admit things. I think that's one of the blessings of confessions, truly, you know, that we're constantly asked to look at ourselves and, and um, get past our, our pride. Um, yeah, and the larger the pride, the more it's associated with power, as it is here with Leontes. The more power you have, the harder it is to see yourself, because you're so sufficient, you're so capable. Um, and his power is near absolute. He's a king. So he images, I think, what's true of all of us on some level in the way way we can allow our pride to blind us and not see ourselves very well. Until something we do um, affects others enough to wake us up, you know, so that we have to look at ourselves more carefully, which is what Leontes is doing here. Affects others enough or affects ourselves enough? All of us. Sorry? All of us, ourselves? I don't think Go ahead. Leontes, I don't think Leontes... Would. Wait, can you all hear Suzanne? Sure. Good time. I don't think Leontes would have seen himself just by looking at Hermione's suffering. I think it isn't until it affects him, until he's lost. He lost his son. Right. And then he wakes up. Then he sees. Yeah. But you said it doesn't, you know, we I don't meant wake both, up until That's what we said. see what we've done to others. Um, and herself, both. Yeah, I think it's his loss that makes him wake up. Yeah, I mean, the point was, we don't see ourselves very clearly. We're blind, and we're forced to look at ourselves and see ourselves and look more closely at what we've done. Um, okay, a change. So here's where, I'd, where I'd, let's see if we can... A couple of things that I want to cover in the time that we've got left. Um, in a sense, we're going back a little bit in time because we've learned from Paulina that she's lost her Lord and she discovers it. So we're going back a little bit in time and we pick up when Antigonus is taking the babe and we learned that on his ship ride to the coast, he has a dream with Hermione coming to him, okay? So he, he lands at this... Um, at the shores of Bohemia. This is where Polixenes is. And the mariner says, I, my lord, in fear we have landed in ill time. The skies look grimly and threaten present blusters. It looks like a storm's coming. In my conscience, the heavens with, with that we have in hand are angry and frown on it. It's, it's like something darkening and foreboding is happening. Antigonus, their sacred wills be done. Go, so um, I don't know if this is out of guilt or whether they are just sensitive to what's going on, but clearly they're aware that God's will is involved at this moment. Something's happening. The skies are threatening. Antigonus says, their sacred wills be done. 
Go get aboard, look to thy bark. I'll not be long before I call upon thee, the mariner. Make your best haste. He leaves, Antigonus, go thou way, I'll follow instantly. The mariner goes. And Antigone speaks to himself and he says, with uh, Perdita as a babe in his hands, Come, poor babe, I have heard but not believe. The spirits of the dead may walk again. He's heard it. <laughs> Imagine Shakespeare uh, living at a Christian at the end of a Christian era. The Christian Middle Ages are past. The Renaissance in the modern world is in its first stages forward. He has some sense of what's going on. We've talked about that. He had a sense of the Reformation in Hamlet, in All's Well That Ends Well. Remember, um, um, the Lord's Lefew said, "The age of miracles is gone." Science is asserting itself, an old way of looking is passing, um, a Christian way of looking is passing. He says, imagine how many people in the audience would have spoken these same words. Come poor babe, I've, I have heard but not believe the spirits of the dead may walk again. If such things be, thy mother appeared to me last night, for ne'er was dream so like awaking. To me comes a creature. So she comes. And before, he would have not believed these things. So this is a, a man aware of these things, but not believing them, not giving them credence himself. And he describes her coming to him in the dream. In pure white robes, like very sanctity, she did approach my cabin where I lay. Thrice bowed before me, and gasping to begin some speech, her eyes became two spouts. The fury spent anon did this break her from. Good Antigonus, since fate against thy better disposition has made thy person for the thrower out of my poor babe, according to thy oath, places remote enough are in Bohemia. There weep and leave it crying, and for the babe is counted lost forever Perdita, I prithee call it. For this ungentle business put on thee by my lord, and there shall see thy wife Paulina more. It's prophetic. She's saying he's, he's, he's his end is here. So he has a dream of her, and it's interesting that um, the way she's described, um, gasping to begin some speech, her eyes became two spouts. The fury spent on did this break from her, like lights pouring from her eyes. So with shrieks she melted into air, affrighted much I did time collect myself, and thought this was so in no slumber. This was real. Dreams are toys, yet for this once, yea, superstitiously, I will be squared by this. I do believe Hermione hath suffered death, and that Apollo would, this uh, being indeed the issue of King Polixenes, it should be here laid, either for life or death. He completely misreads it, but he believes her. So it's, it's because he received this dream from Hermione that he's come to um, Bohemia. This is where Polixenes is in. So at this point, it looks as if the God, some divine order, is at work here. Now, you know what happens. This is coming. Now, hold on. We've just completed a tragic action, okay? Polixenes, or Leontes has learned that he's lost his son. His wife is dead. Paulina knows that her husband's gone. And now we get this. Um, Antigonus... Um, is speaking to himself and, and we learn what had happened in the dream and then we get this weep I cannot but my heart bleeds and most accursed am I to be 
by oath and joined to this farewell. That's about line 45 or so. The day frowns more and more. Thou art like to have a lullaby too rough. I never saw the heavens so dim by day. A savage clamor. Well, may I get aboard. This is the chase. I am gone forever. He's pursued by a bear, and we learn from the bear that he saw the scene with um, Antigonus being eaten go down. Um, they hear the soul, the, sh the, the, the shepherds hear the souls on the ship going down. This is about line 80. I would you did but see how it chafes, how it rages, the waves, how it takes up the shore. But that's not to the point. It wasn't just the size of the storm. Oh, the most piteous cry of the poor soul, sometimes to see him and not to see them. Now the ship boring the moon with her main mast, and anon swallowed with yeast and frost, as you'd thrust a cork into a hogshead, and then for the land and service to see how the bear tore up his shoulder bone, how he cried to me for help and said his name was Antigonus, a nobleman, but to make an end of the ship to see how the sea flapped dragoned it, but first how the poor souls roared, and the sea mocked them, and how the poor gentleman roared, and the bear mocked him, both roaring louder than the sea or the weather. <laughs> it's a name of mercy. When was this boy? Now, now, I have not winked since I saw these sights. The men are not yet cold under the water, nor the bear half dined on the gentleman. He's at it now. Now, stop. i got to stop. Okay. Describe this scene. And how important is it that it comes from shepherds, from rustics, from un un uneducated people? Describe this scene. He's describing it just as a, with a fact of nature. Just it's a, almost casually, almost. Say it again. Well, he's he, he's distraught from having seen it, but it's still, like in the course of things, casually describing an act of nature. Yeah. Anybody else? Melody, what do you see in this? I wish there were something three-dimensional about virtue because when I see you guys snacking, I always want to go get a bowl of something and snack too. By the Sorry, way, just just so you know, just so you know, <laughs> Suzanne brought in some wine a few minutes ago, so. Well, I agree with Chuck that it's kind of almost um, reporter-like. Like, he's pulled himself back from seeing these sights, and they were horrible, kind of like the reporter who saw the um, dirigible crash to the ground back in Germany. You know, it, he saw it, but then again, it was like he wasn't going to go risk his life to help this man being eaten by the bear. He, he it, almost like he somehow knew they deserved it. I don't know. I, that's kind of the feeling I got from it. Like, hey, you know, it happened. This is what happened. And it was really bad. How important is it that it comes from rustics, from shepherds, from uneducated? What does that do to it? If we'd gotten this from lords, would it be the same? No. I would have expected a lord maybe to jump in and help you know, do something, try to go out and save these men who were drowning or save this man, get the bear away from him. But the the uh, the shepherd and the clown, they're, I, I think they 
<laughs> they had this feeling that they were detached from okay. it. You know, it's it, this is too, I mean, we didn't do this work on Plato, but Plato in his description of the cave and the nature of the soul, and he's trying to show that there is a nature to the soul, and if political regimes don't conform to it, they bring about their own destruction, because there is an order to the soul, and regimes have to reflect that, and when they when they not, we're lost. Um, so you've got the wisest, and you've got the nobles who are given to anger, spiritedness, they, they defend... They go out when there's some wrong. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. I mean, you can go um, Hamlet. But the the lower class are always um, sort of self-serving and you know mechanics. They just go about their work, doing their work, what they do. You've got figures like that here. I mean, if you listen to the language, so he's going back and forth to the ship, to the bear, to the ship, to the bear, <laughs> comically. You know, it. So that in itself makes it comic. And then when he gets to the end. And his father says, when was this boy? And his son, the clown, says, now, now, I have not winked since I saw these sights. The men are not yet cold under the water, nor the bear half dined on the gentleman. He's at it now. He's eating dinner. I mean, what he does, he treats it like a, like a, I mean, it's a natural dinner. The bear's just having his food. What Shakespeare's doing right now is shifting genres. We've moved from a tragic world into a world of comedy. And he's preparing us for something that's going to happen. It's not going to do away with it because we know that Leontes has entered into his winter's tale, his purgation. This will be the beginning of a long winter's tale. But right now, um, we, we know that we're in a different world. It's shepherds and rustics. It's not lords. It's not these people who, are, who, have, who go around the world with this sense of self-importance, how educated they are, how noble they are, we're with rustics. They're not pretentious. They, they don't have these airs about themselves. They're not well-dressed. Um, they see things in a very simple manner. And what, because he, by, by doing it the way he does, he allows a comic perspective to come into it. It's a little bit like what Chaucer did with the rhyme. He, he's bringing in an element that helps us to laugh, to, to have a humor while while we carry the sorrow we just experienced in um, Cecilia, okay. Um, Act four, scene one, the chorus presents itself. Um, this is I, it's one of the few times in Shakespeare we have a chorus. You know, you would experience it in Pericles because the whole thing was told by Gower. Here we've got a chorus again, and he says. I that please some try all, both joy and terror, of good and bad, that makes and unfolds air, now take upon me in the name of time to use my wings. Impute it not a crime to me or my swift passage that I slide o'er sixteen years and leave the growth untried of that wide gap. So a couple of things really important that we could just easily overlook. Um, time tries everything. I that please some, try all. All of us are going to undergo trials. And sometimes we're pleased, sometimes not. Both joy and terror of good and bad. That makes and unfolds error. He's, remember, according to the ancient world, there's a rationality to the action of a plot because it always brings us back to nature, restores us. It recovers something lost. There, According to Boethius, according to our belief, this is all pre-modern because the modern world does away with it. There is a nature to things. 
And nature always reasserts itself. We always move towards a recovery of our balance. When things go bad, even if we feel like we're bearing a cross, that the suffering sometimes seems unbearable, um, time will heal. Time will bring things back. Something will happen. God's at work. Um, and he also says this, imputed not a crime to me or, or my swift passage that I slight over 16 years. Um, the growth untried of that wide gap, since it's in my power to overthrow law and in one self-born hour to plant an overwhelmed custom. I want to, this is probably too fine a point here, but I, I want to make it. You know from our work together that one of the values of art is that it reveals us to ourselves. It helps us to see who we are. That's the point I was making a few minutes ago about Leontes. He's brought to a point where he has to look at himself for the first time in a serious way. Art's been doing that all along. It helps us to see ourselves more clearly and our relationship to other people. It, it gives us our vision. It helps take away the blindness. So it can only do that if, it, if it's faithful to the world outside of it, right? It shows us the world as it is. Um, but the, the danger for an artist is that he can, he can try to imitate nature and just um, represent it literally, like a camera, okay? Is everybody clear? Now, the danger of being a camera is if you're literal, you know that if you tried to write something and literally were faithful to what's going on, you would, you would reach 100 pages before you got an hour because everything is constantly in motion. We're always constantly doing it. If you tried to imitate that, write about it, you'd write 100 pages and not be farther than an hour along in your own life. Art has to be faithful to reality. It has to imitate it. But art is constantly trying to get free of reality. It seeks a liberty in what it does by getting free at the same time that it reveals something to us. That's why it's such an extraordinary thing. There's a paradox to it. Yeah? That's why we see some painters... Um, I myself don't like representational art because representational art is too much like a camera. It gives us just what's exactly there. Um, all really good art shows us what's there at the same time that it gets free of it to reveal things about what's there that typically we don't see. Was that clear? It shows us what's there, but in a way that reveals things that we don't see when we see what's there. Yeah? I mean, for example, one of the questions I'm going to ask is, are the gods present here? How do we know? Well, we already had a couple of hints. We've had the oracle, and um, we've had um, Hermione's dream. <clears throat> so the gods are present, but do we see them? Generally not. So how is our faith? How deep, how strong is our faith when things are not going well? How blind are we? Good art shows us what's there. It holds itself responsible literally for what's there. But it doesn't hold itself literally to what's there. It tries to show what's there in a way that helps us to see what generally we don't see when we look to see what's there. Is that clear? Connie, you've got a question. No, are you okay? Okay. 
Anybody? Anybody have a question? So the chorus comes on and says, 16 years have passed, and he says, don't let that bother you because imputed not a crime to me or my swift passage that I slide over 16 years and leave the growth untried of that wide gap since it's in my power to overthrow law and in one self-born hour to plant and overwhelm custom. A good artist is selective in what he chooses to bring into his work because he's trying to show he's trying to be faithful to reality but he's being very selective about what he shows in order to show something more. Jane Austen is very selective about what he shows Charles Dickens or Faulkner or you know whoever Shakespeare. So 16 years have passed um, and he goes on to say that Florizel the son of Polixenes has fallen in love with Perdita. He, 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 I think he does. I think, um, we learned that, um, the, the son of the king is royal born and he's drawn to this shepherdess who's low born. So immediately we have some sense that something's going to happen. Um, we, we, that gets picked up in Act 4, Scene 2, and Polixenes and Camilla talk. And Camilla says he's learned from, Leontes, that Leontes wants him to return, Act 4, Scene 2, about line 5. It's 15 years since I saw my country, though I have, for the most part, been um, aired abroad. I desire to lay my honors. Hold on. I desire to lay my bones there. Besides, the penitent king my master has sent for me. Polixenes says that he doesn't want him to leave. He says about line 13, Thou having had... The, the, then thus to want thee, thou having made my businesses, which none without thee can sufficiently manage, must either stay to execute them thyself or take away with thee the services thou hast done. So remember, Camilo has come from a more sophisticated regime. He's probably more efficient and careful in doing things than Polixenes or his servants would be. So Polixenes has found that he's very valuable and useful in helping him be a better ruler. He asks him to stay, and then he says something else is going on. He's learned that his son has been spending time with this shepherd, about line 25 or so, say to me, when sawst thou the prince, Florizel, my son, kings are no less unhappy, their issue not being gracious, than they are in losing them when they have approved their virtue. He's unhappy when he's away, just as he is when his son does things that are he wish he didn't do. Camilla tells him it's been some time, and there's some sense that he's spending time with um, a young woman. Now, I'm going to just read this, and then I'm going to leave it here, because um, I don't want to press in the last couple of minutes. So the two of them are going to disguise themselves and go to the sheep-sharing festival. It's in the country. It's rustic. Um, it's an annual thing. Act 4, scene 3 begins with this man whose name is Autolycus singing. When daffodils begin to peer with high the doxy or the dale, why then comes in the sweet of the year, for the red blood rains in the winter's pale. The white sheets bleaching on the hedge with high the sweet birds, oh how they sing, the set my pugging tooth on edge, for a quart of ale is a dish for a king. 
he, he gets a taste for stealing, for robbing the way he does. He's a thief. He's a robber. And he's a con man. He's going to cheat all of the people he's going to steal. He's going to be a pickpocket. He's going to steal things from them as a pickpocket. And he's going to sell these ballads that I mentioned earlier, all these lyrics. And the women seem particularly taken by them. And they're about women. Um, they, they deal with situations in which strange things happen involving women. Okay? Now, I'm not going to go into this now, um, but Autolycus is going to play an important role in what's about to happen. He's a thief, he's a pickpocket, he's a con man, he sells lyrics, and the lyrics tend to be about women involved in these unbelievable, excuse me, sorts of situations. What is Shakespeare doing? So let me try to set this up. We've gone from Sicilia, this very sophisticated, cultured regime, it's like some of the major regimes in Italy at the time, to Bohemia. It's a rustic place. There's a, there's a castle and a lord. Polixenes is his lord. But generally, it's more naturalistic. It's less sophisticated. Okay? And um, when we go there, we, we find these shepherds um, who are clown-like figure, rustics, um, and we get Polixenes with Camilo planning to disguise themselves to attend this sheep sharing festival to find out what his, his son is doing, what Florizel is doing. Why does Shakespeare do this? Why is he taking us from this sophisticated regime to Bohemia, Bohemia, this pastoral world? And why does he put in the middle of this pastoral world this thief, this crook? this guy named um, Autolycus, okay? Um, we're going to meet the lovers, and we'll see two lovers come together. One of my questions will be, how is their love, the love between Florizel and Perdita, how is their, their love different from the love between Leontes and Hermione? So see, it's a very sophisticated place. We watched what happened between a husband and wife there. Here we've got two young lovers falling in love. They're, they're much younger than um, Leontes and Hermione. What's the difference between the two loves? Does it matter? Why is this rogue, this, this, this mischievous guy there, what's Shakespeare doing? So we're going to encounter these young lovers. The father's going to come, and the son is going to announce that he's going to marry this girl, and the father gets really upset. He says, is your father here? Don't you think he should be by?" to witness this, and Florizel will say no, and um, Polixenes will unmask himself and, and get really angry, and he will threaten um, the, the shepherd and his son and tell them to have nothing to do with Perdita anymore, and he threatens to disinherit um, Florizel if he doesn't obey him, and things are going to fall apart there. Um, so let me stop. That's, that's where we're going. We're going to be heading towards what looks like another tragedy. Son and father are going to be at odds. Two lovers are going to be threatened with a breakup. Um, what's Shakespeare doing? Um, how, do, how, how, how do things get resolved? How do things get resolved there? And how does what happened in Bohemia help with the resolution that will take place at Cecilia? Back with Leontes and his wife. Are those questions clear? I just, I want to focus on the last scene. 
the the the, sh the sheep shearing festival and what happens when the lovers when the young lovers go back to Cecilia with Camila um, and something happens with Leontes it's actually an amazing ending an amazing ending. any questions up to this point about what we've been doing or about where the play is going and what's happening We're in a very different world, a situation involving a father and a son could begin to look as dark as the situation in Cecilia, but it doesn't. Even though, even though there's, you know, the, the son has to flee, it has, it has all the looks of what might turn into a tragedy, but it's averted. Something's happening. What's going on? Okay. Any questions or last comments? Enjoy the last part of the play. The last part of the play is amazing. And if any of you can get a hold of the BBC production, it's 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 a wonderful, it's just an extraordinary production. It's it's just beautifully done. Um, okay. Um, enjoy your week. All of you be safe. Um, Keep us in your prayers. We keep you in your prayers. Okay, say hi to David. Um, see you guys next week. Good night. Bye. Good night.